Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast with some of your favorite people from Philadelphia talking about some of the best, some of the worst, and some of the most moderately okay movies ever. I'm Sam. I'm here with my co-host, Dave, Christine, Connor. And tonight we, well, tonight, today, whatever you're listening, I don't know. uh, We are wrapping up our musical theme. And I'm so excited to share uh, the movie I brought, which is Rocket Man. But before we get into that... Friends, co-hosts, patriots, have you watched anything cool lately? Uh, well, speaking of uh, patriots, I did get around to watching a film that came out early last year uh, that uh, I think it was January or February of 2021. And it's a film called 2025. Uh, this is a movie in which the pandemic the pandemic of uh the onset of the pandemic of 2020 has resulted in a one world government uh which has uh banned travel uh meetings i think they mean gatherings but meetings uh because there are meetings in the movie and of course christianity uh so it's uh apparently a very uh specific authoritarian authoritarian government that is uh overseeing everyone and uh several people's resistance to it uh in their bold campaign to spray paint jesus fish on the ground in forests and that is their whole plan it's it's hard to do this but i think it makes the acting in the room look good uh i mean it is it is an esl movie it is uh, a german film uh where because uh, English won the language war, uh, so the movie tells us uh, they are all speaking English uh, and occasionally German. But yeah, it's it's an astonishingly inept film that I cannot morally recommend for its content. Uh, but as far as viewing it as a piece of like high art garbage, in, in on on par with like The Room or Troll Two or things like that, then it's actually kind of a must see. So I would say that one is uh, bonkers and uh, for the adventurous out there. I just can't believe you watched that, truly. I, was, I heard about it at work and someone gave me the, basically the description that I gave. And I was like, well, I've, it's, that sounds terrible. I'm going to need to see it. <laughs> I've seen that making rounds on like different YouTube folks and Twitter folks that I follow talking about it and watching it. So I'm glad to hear that you watched it and it lived up to the hype. And it seems like someone also on Letterboxd has uh, edited, like Photoshop edited the actual poster like this week because earlier on it was the actual movie poster and now it's just like some dude in headphones, uh, like an oversized dude with headphones head replacing the actual actor's head on the poster, which is pretty hilarious. Along the lines of terrible movies that I would morally recommend I, there was some phrasing <laughs> that i was like i feel like i can see why you're not recommending this other movie but i would recommend this horrible movie because seeing is believing so i watched 2014 slash 2021's the king's daughter starring none other than pierce brosnan and his luscious luscious auburn locks he plays louis the 14th and his daughter uh, is like kept away in a nunnery and then suddenly she's brought to the palace of Versailles and she's a cellist and it's just about her and then Louis XIV is trying to kidnap and kill this mermaid for her powers <laughs> and it's god awful but I highly recommend that you watch it because they filmed it at Versailles and it looks terrible. It's edited terribly. The costuming is so confused, like has no idea what it wants to be. I think they blew all their budget on filming on location in Versailles, that they literally had no money for anything else. But it's once again, it's a seeing is believing. And the star, the two main stars who are not Pierce Brosnan fell in love on the set and got married. So there were good things that came out of this besides Pierce Brosnan as Louis XIV, which you must witness and behold, the Sun King. This movie's had quite the journey uh, to Sundance, which is how it finally premiered. 
Um, it was yeah. in the can for <clears throat> six years. <laughs> and that actress um, has gone on, I think, to be in, in some new stuff recently. So, oh, she was, so a new movie with her came out the same weekend that this movie from 2014 came out. So you can see an actress six years younger and then present all in one day in the theater. Yeah. Oh, that's trippy. I'm, I'm probably happy that, for her that she has like other things to promote besides this movie. Like, I wonder what the contractual obligations were for like having to tweet about the King's daughter and like all of this shit, but it is, uh, it is, a, it's something to be, to behold. And I, I would definitely recommend seeing it. I've been watching not a new show, but a new show to me um, called imposters which is recommended by uh, one of my fr- um, friend's moms who it's this random show that Bravo made a couple years ago that's scripted yeah. and has the like veneer of a um, like CW show, lots of melodrama, beautiful people, but it's so damn good. It's like a really good crime, dark comedy show where it lulls you in with this expectation of like, Oh, guy gets, you know, this is in the first, you know, 20 minutes, the guy's wife is not who, you know, everyone thinks she is. And there's this whole backstory and whole kind of con and scheme. And so really just every like three episodes, two episodes, there's like a new twist that just makes you want to keep watching. Um, and it's kind of one of those shows that you're like, this has no right being as good as it is. And, um, we're absolutely hooked. And then it has like a lot to say about like, um, being your true authentic self and what does it mean to like play different roles and how do different people play different roles in their lives, whether that's in their marriage or uh, professionally or for criminal activity. So it's really like an onion. It's got some layers that I didn't expect. Um, So I haven't finished the first season, but so far imposters is really, um, is really a standout and that's currently on Netflix. That sounds really cool. Actually. Great, folks. Well, let's jump into the movie of the week, Rocket Man. So uh, I actually saw this movie on a double feature with my roommates. Uh, We saw Godzilla, King of Monsters, and then went right to Rocket Man. Um, So that was a very interesting combination. I recommend it. So for folks who are unfamiliar with Rocket Man, it came out in 2019, uh, directed by Dexter Fletcher, written by Lee Hall, starring Taron Egerton, Jamie Bell, Richard Madden, Bryce Dallas Howard, and a few more other folks. They had a a budget that, 40 million, that really surprises me um, with the amount of like costumes and editing, everything that went into this movie. I can't believe it, but it grossed about 195 million. So it's, it's a pretty good return, I would say. And this movie, of course, is about Elton John. So uh, synopsis here where I, I literally can't remember where I stole this from. I'm so sorry, but I definitely plagiarized. This is not mine. Um, set to his most beloved songs, Rocket Man is a biographical musical fantasy drama film based on the life of Elton John, his breakthrough years in the 1970s, and his transformation from shy piano progeny to international superstar. There's so much more to it than that, but like, dang, you would just get into the weeds. Um, was this anyone's first time watching Rocket Man? It was my first time seeing it, yes. Okay. Also my first time uh, seeing it. I saw it in theaters. This is probably like maybe the third movie I saw before the pandemic hit. Wow. Interesting. Was it still in theater then? It was in theaters for, well, I didn't see that many movies from like the late 2019 into 2020 in theaters. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, so first time folks, what'd you think? Um, I thought it was blended. I see that it's like, I uh, looked up the writer Lee Hall, who also did the screenplay to Billy Elliot. Makes total sense. Jamie Bell playing Bernie, is it Toppin or Topin, who was uh, Elton John's lyricist? I had no idea about their friendship and their relationship. Like, I was like, the uh, the movie's depiction of their like lifelong work partnership and friendship is just so beautiful. And um, I was surprised. It felt like it was written f- to be a stage music. It, like it had elements of a stage musical. So I was surprised that it wasn't first a stage production and then turned into a movie. Um, I thought Taryn Edgerton was really, really lively and wonderful. And 
really embodied the energy of Elton John. I think it was a little, uh, I, I think once Taryn entered as Elton, the movie really picks up. The little boy who plays the younger version is really cute, but I felt like tonally it like shifted a lot and got way more, like I, I wanted the whole movie to be all dancing, all music. And so once Taryn entered the scene, I thought it like really blossomed, but I thought overall it was, it was quite a fun, uh, fun ride and doesn't take on everything. I was like, oh, are they going to do like Diana and Candle the Wind, like all of that. And they were just like, let's keep it snappy. Let's keep it going. And then it ends, like it just finishes. And it was, yeah, it was great. Yeah, for a first time go around, I will say this reminded me in some interesting ways of Bohemian Rhapsody. Hear me out on this. Bohemian Rhapsody for me was in some ways a very exciting movie because I'm a very big, like lifelong Queen fan. I was really just excited to see them build a, a movie around those songs and feature them so prominently. So every time a Queen song piped up in Bohemian Rhapsody, I was just like, fuck yeah, this is great. And then I had to deal with the surrounding terrible movie because the parts of that movie where Queen is not playing is pretty insufferable, I'd say. It's pretty pretty rocky film. Uh, this movie was uh, similar in that regard because I'm a big Elton John fan uh, as well, not as much as Queen. But the nice thing was that those songs were baked into and packaged into a genuinely very good movie. So it was really a satisfying, it was finally a satisfying version of that idea brought to life. Uh, I do think there are structural elements of this that are very, honestly, derivative of other uh, music, uh, musician biopics. Uh, but I think for a variety of reasons that I, I want to explore in a little bit, but on the whole, yeah, I was very taken by it. Edgerton turns in a great performance. I think it's interesting that he sang the songs and does not quite sing like Elton John, uh, but definitely, I don't know, brings a character to it. And I guess Elton John himself suggested Edgerton not make it a an, an impression, really kind of make it his own. And he really succeeds in doing so. The surrounding performances are really great. And on the whole, I think the telling of a familiar uh, story structure and uh, and biopic structure is brought to life in some really innovative and interesting and unique ways in this movie. So uh, on the whole, really enjoyed it. That's awesome. I can't wait to really dive deep into this. Connor, how about a repeat watch? What are you thinking? Uh, when I saw this movie in theaters, I loved it. I thought it was, and watching it again was sort of like, oh man, movies can be really fun. Like in person, like when you're with a crowd, um, like it just, it felt like kind of like a concert energy with the audience that we were with, uh, even though there were a lot of old people and people getting up and down. So sort of like some things I hate about the movie experience, but then a lot of it was sort of like people coming together to really celebrate, um, a really awesome film. Uh, so I really loved the second time going through it. Uh, it were interest. I was thinking a lot about singing in the rain while watching rocket man, which because there is a lot of like theatrical presentation, like you brought up um, Christine, but it just feels so much more engaging, which like isn't really fair to sing in the rain because that came out in the 1950s when this is like a modern movie with modern sensibilities and editing and camera work and so much more that we could do today than back then. But it just kind of felt like there was a similar energy to a lot of the movie. Um, and Edgerton just gives an amazing performance. I think this time I felt its length a little. Like, it seems like maybe there's like a little 20% longer than it needed to. Like, I'm not quite, like, I don't want to cut anything. I think that's what's hard. But I just felt like, I think, Dave, the structural points you're bringing up of where I think maybe the back half, like the final bit of the movie, maybe loses me a little bit. But overall, this is like a, a great film that after it ended, I was like, should I put it back on? And like, just watch it again as I'm like kind of finishing up. Um, and I was listening to Elton John the past two days. Um, just like a, a playlist that on Spotify. So I, I think it's all around an incredibly successful film on multiple levels. Oh, that's so awesome. I'm so glad everybody liked it because I was like worried. Anytime you bring a film that you love, it's like you're just waiting for people to hate on it. Um, anyway, yes, I love this movie. I am such a big Taron fan. Um, I almost feel like gatekeeping him just like a little bit. I feel like I've been a fan of his for a very long time. And I, the very first movie I picked for this podcast included Taron Edgerton. Um, 
So I'm a day one fan, not a day whatever fan, whatever. Um, but you know, I'm so sorry, but these were the days that not all of us watched the movies That's <laughs> that right. we talked about. What Testament movie was your first movie? Testament of Youth. Um, because I was like, what else is he in? And he's in the Kingsman. Is that yeah. right? Those movies are. I, well, I really like them, Dave. I know you had some things to say about them. Yeah, I really don't like them, but fair enough. The whole time I was watching Rocket Man, I was like, why is this dude not more famous right now? Because he clearly is a talent and has just this absolute on-screen charisma. And I'm like, I'm surprised that I haven't seen him in a bunch of stuff. But now I, I just got to watch Kingsman. Yeah, I think his career is still like in the the beginning stages. And that's why I feel like guilty gatekeeping him because I'm like, no, like he's such a good actor. He deserves to have more recognition for it. But then I'm also like, he's such a normal dude. Don't let fame touch him. No, don't do it. But this film really, like I said, is just phenomenal. Um, And it took 20 years really to get going. Um, There had been like previous versions of it. and back and forth between Elton and the studios that were going to to produce it. Originally, they wanted Justin Timberlake to play Elton. And then fucking Tom Hardy, blowing my goddamn mind. Uh, Could you imagine? I can't. I'd watch that. I'd watch that. (laughs) I would rather watch Tom Hardy than Justin Timberlake as Elton Agreed. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love Tom Hardy. I'd watch anything he's in, but like, I... Mm, I don't know. I don't think that would be the right choice. Um, But then eventually um, Dexter Fletcher, Matthew Vaughn, um, Taryn has done stuff with them previously. So I think that it was just kind of in the waters. And uh, I know that he was interested in playing Elton John. And then it seems like they really, Elton John and Taryn really bonded. So uh, this just sounds like a, a really wonderful filming experience and like lifelong friendships now. So we have talked about biopics before or um, things that have been based on memoirs, right? Testament of Youth. Connor, what was the one with Melissa McCarthy? Can you ever forgive me? Can you ever forgive me? And I feel like there was another one. Oh, Fighting With My Family. Um, And we have all come to a point where we're like, I just want this story to be different. Um, But it's like, how can it be, right? Like this is a person's life. You can't really change too, too much of it. And I think that this movie, the way that it frames the whole conversation, um, I don't really have that problem. So the the way that the movie starts is um, we see Elton as an unreliable narrator um he comes into screen wearing it like the on stage regalia and he goes into rehab specifically to a group therapy session and um the 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 main therapist there is asking him questions and he's like rude he's being an asshole because he's like the thing i don't know uh yeah a treatment center worth their salt that would allow this sort of atmosphere in a treatment meet session but <laughs> I don't think so. Him coming in that outfit, I think that would have been um, a big no-no. You're uh, gonna have to change. <laughs> yeah, but I think that the the outfit was used as a storytelling device um, because the the more honest Elton got, the more of the costume he shed. I really liked that. And uh, so, what did you folks think about this? Because the the story also, Christine, like you mentioned, it doesn't include everything. And so certain things are told out of order. And, you know, did you have the same problems with this movie of being like, this character was really like shortened down to this or I wanted it to be different? I was coming from a place of not already knowing a lot about Elton John's life and the people in his life. I I was, I had seen a article that briefly mentioned like Bernie, like just mentioned, I was like, okay, yeah, he had like a creative partnership for a long time, but like, I didn't know about uh, the extent of it. I didn't know a lot about the details of his life. So for me, I wasn't like wanting or expecting one thing and then being met with something else. I was just kind of going along for the ride. 
I could tell there were moments where the movie was like, we're not going to go totally into this, like his marriage (laughs) or his first marriage. And like, it's, so it's like a little blip. And I was like, you know, move on. (laughs) And I didn't think that it suffered, you know, by not fully delving into that. So to me, I, I was, I was fine. I, I, at first I thought that the jumping back and forth between, uh, Elton in the rehab facility, looking back on his life. It, at first I was like, is this gonna like feel kind of a little gratingly formulaic, but I, I, I ended up liking that device because for me, the climax of the movie ultimately was him acknowledging he needed help. And I thought that ended up being a really wonderful narrative moment. It wasn't, oh, I finally get to perform on this stage or I finally wrote this song. Those are mini climaxes, but the ultimate narrative climax in the movie is him acknowledging like that, yeah, that, that he needs to reach out and get help. And that felt really like a moving uh, storytelling arc to me. I wrote down a couple of beats here that I'm just going to run through. Uh, and you tell me if this uh, sounds, uh, you know, on, off the cuff, uh, kind of familiar as far as this or other films. So we meet our uh, biopic subject reflecting on their life from the midpoint of the story. It then goes back to a precocious but shy kid with a nostalgic but traumatic childhood. They discover their talent and influences and are encouraged to pursue that gift. They appeal to an initially dismissive industry rep until playing a scaled down version of a later hit, which uh, gets them the gig. They tour, they find love, they experiment with drugs and sex. Uh, They start having problems with the drugs because of their childhood problems, especially with their parents. Uh, These movies are always weirdly Freudian for some reason. Uh, They push away their genuine support network in favor of manipulative, enabling industry insiders. They OD or there's a suicide attempt, in this case both. Uh, An old friend urges them to get clean and uh, get back on tour, and then they do a reunion or a comeback. I I just described this movie and about 12 other musical biopics. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a story that I have seen too many times, but I think that the way that this movie presents that material. It's a, it's a it's a story that I am kind of tired of hearing in the sense that it feels so formulaic, but the telling of it and the stylization of how we experience it, how we're immersed in it, how certain moments are heightened by kind of very like flamboyant and imaginative uh, and very out there elevating stylization, which is pretty in league with Elton John's public persona, makes it very fitting. So yeah, on the whole, uh, I think I recognized all the beats as it went on as being very conventional and yeah, very formulaic, but the presentation saw me through it to the end uh, in a really really creative and unique way. It, It takes a story that I've heard too many times and tells it in a way that I've never heard, which I really appreciated. And I am trying to figure out why that is. Like, I was thinking about it today, and it's like either it is just a, a formulaic structure uh, that is part of, like, the genre conventions, and it's a lazy screenwriter re- leaning on that over and over again, which I don't think applies here because, again, of the stylization. Or it's perhaps a genuine reflection of that era because there was a lot of commonality in how people experienced the then very restrictive music industry. And in that case, if it is the latter, which I think is probably maybe a little more true and probably why that is a convention, then you need to take that story and elevate it and make it unique, which this film does. Yeah, the the presentation does not feel boilerplate at all. Uh, And I think this um, conceit of sort of looking back, I think for me works so well because this movie is not concerned with reality. Like telling a grounded story um, it's just not something this movie is concerned with. Uh, and I think we see that, like, I don't even, in my mind, like this therapy session is not even happening in like a reality that we know. Um, it's just like a device. Yeah. Yeah. It's a device. And then you have ghosts coming back in, you know, throughout it. 
Um, and I think that visual metaphor for him taking off his extravagant outfit, like the devil horns and the wings, how they fall off. And at the end, you see as he's walking into this therapy, like a feather fall down. And so you can see as he's entering, like at the end, it's like a full circle moment. And so I think it's, yeah, Dave, I think all your, or your, all your points are right, which is why um, the John C. Riley movie, uh, Walk Hard, Dewey Cox Story, is probably the best movie biopic of all time, even though it's <laughs> not about a real person whatsoever. Um, that's the funny thing to me too, is like, they keep, they keep making these movies with that formula after that movie has so incisively lampooned it, which is interesting. Yeah. That's one I'll, I definitely want to uh, bring to the podcast one day. And so I just think it's, yeah, the like heightened world that this is in. And I think you really feel the, the push and the pull that Elton John feels throughout it. And I think the movie just accelerates and accelerates and it, it doesn't stop until he's hit his rock bottom. Um, visually the way it's, you know, people talk, people act, people behave, the songs, especially the pinball wizard moment is sort of where the movie really starts to spin out of control, uh, or his life starts to really kind of spin out of control. So I think it's, yeah, the presentation that really elevates the on paper formulaicness. And I also think that it goes to the source material, right? Like these are Elton John songs that I grew up listening to and loving. So everything, you know, like fit like an old sweater. And I was just excited to, to hear it and to see it. And Christine, you mentioned this, I, Taryn's charismatic performance. Like I cannot believe what he did. And I know that it, it kind of killed him a little bit. Um, I remember like, again, I'm like a big fan. Um, the months after he looked exhausted and it had a lot to do with exactly what he put into that performance. Cause I mean, you think about it, like the way that he had to act, he had to be on like times 10 in comparison to everybody else on screen in a lot of cases. And then he also had to like sing all of that. His vocals are featured on 21 out of 22 songs. That is unbelievable. I, I just, I want to totally agree with that. And now that I'm thinking about it, Sam, I'm like, I do think that this is his performance in my mind, I think is one of the best performances I've seen in a movie in a while. I, I like really think that if they hadn't picked him as the star, I don't know if I, I like the movie on the whole, but I think really what people need to see like I I think people need to see this movie for a couple reasons but mainly to witness this performance because it is on another level you're totally right Sam the energy that he infuses into every scene he embodies the like the Elton John charisma and he's a physical performance too it's unbelievable like when he steps out on the stage you can really see that he's giving it his all so it's yeah, it's it's really, I think I'd amazing. Did he win any awards for this performance? Yeah, I think he won a Golden Globe. Okay, yeah. Well, he deserved it. Not that and, that is any indication of deserved performances. <laughs> yeah, as <laughs> we'll uh, we'll unpack soon. But I'm glad <laughs> he got something shiny out of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and also just the way that like it's it's not even those big verbose moments. It's you you seeing the distinction between him being the public figure Elton John and the person that he is and switching between the two, depending on the situation, which is very nuanced. Yeah. I think a scene that really sticks with me is when he is, I I can't remember exactly what he's about to do, but he's in the dressing room and he's putting on his glasses and he's trying to make himself smile, how to like, how to look happy. It's like, oh no, that's like too crazy. That doesn't work well. How to find the right smile. And like, damn, that just fucking sucks. You know, like I'm sure not just Elton John has to do something like that in order to have this like public persona, but like, damn man, that's hard. It's a better, yeah, it's a better version of uh, that scene than uh, another one that came out, uh, mirroring it in 2019, the same year, and that would be Joker. So <laughs> big, big mirror year. Interesting. Um, I also think, like, not to, like, keep harping on just, like, Taryn's greatness, um, but his chemistry with Jamie Bell in particular, it's amazing. 
I, I and I love Jamie Bell too. Um, it was kind of like a dream cast for me. I really like Richard Madden. He's given me the ick lately because of you know him like dating people that are like way too young for him anyway. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so it's just an exciting movie to watch. But I I felt captivated by their performance together and the love felt real. And I thought the movie did such a wonderful job of like depicting their creative partnership where Bernie was the lyricist and Elton was writing the music and the way that it wove what were on both of their minds around the same time that they were writing the the songs. I thought it really breathed life into a lot of the, the classic hits. Um, and part of me was like, oh shit, I didn't know that he had a separate lyricist. So it kind of was like, oh, this isn't Elton sitting down and just like pouring out his thoughts, like in like Tiny Dancer or, you know, uh, Rocket Man or whatever. Cause I think the lyrics in both of those songs are some of the best. But then I'm like, but that was, his expression is an unbelievable melody and chord changes and just the the most amazing, yeah, uh, musical expression. And so together, I think the movie just showcases like you've got a solid, beautiful set of lyrics and you've got an unbelievable melody and catchy chorus and like arrangement behind it. And you've got some of the best, you know, classic songs uh, ever. And so the movie does a great job of like, yeah, as I said, showing their creative partnership and then weaving those particular stories into, into the songs and showcasing the songs. Yeah. There are, as I understand it, some uh, anachronisms as far as their dynamic is concerned, like, um, which it doesn't really bother me. I mean, like, you know, throughout the movie, they have these splits and rifts where, um, you know, they're misunderstanding each other, but there's still a love there. And sometimes it'll take some time apart. Uh, the true history is that they, you know, they were pretty much lifelong collaborators and like frequently worked as a pair. So it's not as though they had these contentious splits. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody does the same thing where there are all these fights within Queen and Queen was never known to really fight at all. They had a very, very good and healthy dynamic as a band. So like, I, but I, I appreciate and understand that you need to inject that drama a little bit and it's functional. So I think that's a, you know, one of those fabrications that I, I can, I can sanction and allow. Although it is a little bit confusing at the very end of the movie when we get like real portraits of them. And it's, it mentions that like, and he and Elton have never to this day had a fight. And it's like, well, I saw them have a fight 30 minutes ago. What do you? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess like all the, like all biopics, the truth is somewhere in between. It wasn't really a fight though. It was like, cause there's that conversation well, that yeah. Elton, well, it's, it's an inter- it was an interesting scene where like Elton is like, you abandoned me. You left me when I needed you the most. And Bernie just doesn't even respond to those comments. He just like, is like, I'm here, like I'm here for you. Or like, I, I think that you, I-, I can't remember what he replies, but it's not like a, I never abandoned you. I never left you. It was just a, I think that it's like, ready you it's time for you to get help or something like that and it's just a beautiful moment where it's like that's what friendship is and that is what when two people care about one another this is how it plays out and it's kind of a mundane it's kind of like a whatever conversation so I didn't see it as like a huge dramatic falling out or whatever but um, yeah I suppose it's not heavily dramatized but it is like a written tension yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I knew nothing, saying. so I was eating it up. I was like, sure, this is how it happened. Why not? <laughs> well, I mean, that really leads me into talking about some of my favorite scenes. And honestly, my favorite performance is your song. It is such a like a sweet and tender moment between um, Elton and Bernie. And like, like I couldn't look away, you know, they're making eye contact every time uh, Taryn turned to look at Jamie. It was, it just felt so warm and so real. And, you know, there's probably Dave, like you said, the truth lies somewhere in between, but you know, the movie makes it seem like Bernie is one of the only people that really loved Elton and really understood him. And seeing it in that song and that performance is just 
so like I cry every time. Yeah, seeing them sort of like as a pair writing one song, but the the ethos of it being that you both lyrically it means you know you mean a lot to me. Thank you for coming into my life and inspiring me. On uh, Bernie's perspective, and Elton now having the material that he can elevate uh, and give back to him as a finished song. And that exchange in that moment is with that's expressed just via eye contact is really graceful and really well handled. Yeah, it's almost like watching them fall in love with each other. And I think that in a lot of ways to have like such a successful like business relationship, you do have to like deeply, deeply love and care for somebody like that. So what other songs and scenes did you folks like? I mean, that first uh, that first set at the Troubadour. And that stylization is really when the movie like really peaks up. I mean, early on, there's the great uh, Saturday Nights Are Right for Fighting, mm-hmm. uh, where it's it's sort of like him running all over the place as a child, like running in and out of fences. And like he keeps running into these different crowds that represent different like musical influences, which is really insightful. But once we get to that stylized moment, though, where he's just like he I mean, there's pictures of him famously like leaping up while playing the piano, just like horizontal in the air while still like hammering home the chords. And the choice to have it turn into this sort of like hit, both him elevated and just like impossibly floating in the air while still playing. And gradually the audience also being lifted is like that feeling of not only sharing experience, but really having a crowd in the palm of your hand in a powerful and a, ma- a great way as a, it's just you know it's really obviously illustrating that he's such a magnetic performer and that that was such a legendary performance yeah crocodile rock man i think that's the song that's been stuck in my head the most <laughs> since re-watching this which was which was the number where it's it's his transition from being a boy and then you see taryn in the like carnival circus which you just mentioned it dave what song uh, was that uh, saturday nights so, okay, that yes, that's when the movie really kicked into high gear. And I have no problem with the kid's performance. He was adorable. He had a very nice voice. But like I wanted some of those like sort of fantastical song and dance numbers also like in his childhood. But maybe that was a choice because it really wasn't him finding himself in his true expressive mode until he's older and on the stage and dancing with people. Uh, but I really loved that number when he's doing uh, like 50s jumps or, you know, like 1950s, 60s jumps in the carnival with a whole bunch of dancers behind him. That was really beautiful. I, I saw uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road was done really well um, when it was that was a marker of like him ready to kind of get help and figure out how to find some balance in his life. Um, I feel like people, hmm? Jamie Bell singing. Yes. And, and to Mm. see, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and to see them, uh, uh, duetting and that was really, that was really precious. I thought my favorite Elton John song is tiny dancer. It's amazing song. It was kind of funny the way they like, (laughs) roll that song out where they go to their first big like Hollywood party and it's <laughs> they're outside with people to like dancing and on drugs and everything and then you see Elton like making his way through the through the the party crowd but what is everyone's favorite Elton song I think mine has to be your song I just I just really love that song out of many songs that I love but <clears throat> I think your song Mine's like a little, uh, like a deep cut kind of. So it's funeral for a friend slash uh, love lies bleeding. Are you serious? That's my favorite too. Oh, <laughs> that's wild. That's great. Followed, I guess, closely by um, maybe either a leave on or um, don't let the sun go down on me. One of those two. Oh my God. That's wild, Dave. <laughs> An 11 and a half minute introduction to the album. Yeah. I think out of really many standout moments, um, the titular Rocket Man moment, uh, where he tries to kill himself in the pool and he sees a young version of himself in like the astronaut outfit playing on the small piano and people diving in. I think like it's a visually stunning moment. Uh, and then transitioning 
to him at the, uh, in the Dodgers uniform at, in LA, sort of like a really famous Elton John moment that I feel like in many movies would be played. This is the culminate, like the Bohemian Rhapsody movie ends with um, live aid. Right. Which is like, not at all the final, like Freddie Mercury thing in his life. Right. Oh no, not, not by any means. No. And so I feel like there was, this movie did a good job of avoiding kind of a lot of traps and baits that many musical biopic movies fall into. And I thought this rocket man, because you hear the music, it's like underscoring a lot of scenes and along with some other songs. And I thought that moment paid off really well, especially when he's like on the gurney, they pick him up, undress him. Like it's very, it's like a ballet kind of element. And then they put the uniform on, he grabs the bat and then he's like, looks dead in the face and then has the big smile up, Sam, like you were talking about, like the, that performative smile. And that's really him hitting a baseball off of the piano. I think they had to do that several dozen times to like get that take <laughs> or something like that. And so I just thought, for me, that might have been my favorite one, but it's it's hard to pick a, a favorite moment. I I really appreciate that. I think this movie was also like we're not going to tell you what you already know. We're going to show you like behind the scenes, so you really know. Like what what's the point of going so deep into that LA performance? Right? Like we know it. We 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 get it. I think the only exception is the the troubadour performance because like that is like the the the, the beginning. Were there any songs you were surprised didn't make the cut? Well, we were talking before we started recording about uh, what, yeah, what wasn't included in in terms of like Elton John's life and Candle in the Wind not making an appearance was a little surprising. But then again, that was, you know, I believe, yeah, that was what she passed after 91, Diana. I forget what year offhand. I think it was maybe like 94. That sounds... We're 97. My mom's going to be so mad. I, <laughs> too, it would have been like a whole thing, though. Like 97. Yeah. It, and it's wise not to include that. And I think also the movie sets us in terms of the quote unquote present in 91, if I'm remembering correctly. So it wouldn't even have happened. Uh, at, at least not that adapted version of his of that song. So I was surprised it wasn't in there, but pleasantly surprised. I I don't know how I feel about the ending. Because it feels abrupt, Christine. I really liked the. I thought it it was a perfect little uh, sort of exclamation point, uh, exclamation mark, and then it ends, and it didn't do the like drawn out. And this is what happened in the rest of his life. What they do use is the credits as the opportunity to then not only show you those photos of Taryn as Elton versus real Elton, but they give you, you know, like all of the big highlights of his life. And that's all I needed. I, I thought, I, that's why I was kind of surprised, Connor, you said that it like felt like it was dragging a little the second go round. Cause I was like, I, I thought it was mercifully <laughs> to the point and then ends just as you're feeling good as every concert should, right? You know, you don't want to drag on with like a bajillion encores. You feel the audience is there with you. You leave them feeling, uh, feeling good, which is the way I, I and felt like ending watching that movie. One thing that did really freak me out was during that credit sequence where we're seeing Edgerton in, in different outfits that are meant to really recapture what Elton John was wearing and the two, uh, the two pictures, you know, him, as Elton John and Elton John in the real, in like that historical uh, regalia and garb and everything. And I couldn't help thinking to myself like, man, if they made this movie 25 years ago with David Cross, it would have been like a spot on match for Elton John, <laughs> as opposed to Taron Edgerton. <laughs> but oh my God. <laughs> likely would not have been nearly as good though. Yeah, you know though, I, I feel like they really managed to make Taron look like Elton though. They you do know, a great job with the hair, were, in like painted yeah. gap in his teeth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was a, there was definitely a close up. It was a very like expressive and moving scene, but all I could focus on was like squinting eyes and being like, "Can I see the paint on his teeth?" <laughs> I think that's when he's confronting his dad. Maybe um, I think there's oh, like there's a, yeah. I mean that's such a wonderful scene. Um, track absolutely devastating, um, but I think a really. And I think sincerity is another point that this movie gets really well, is that's like, look at this rock star's life. Oh, drugs, sex. Oh, man, things are down. Oh, but he's back. But you really get a chance to learn about his family, to see him interact, um, especially with his mother. 
and I didn't even realize that was Bryce Dallas Howard until the second time. I was like, she looks so familiar. And then, I, and then the credits, I was like, oh yeah. So like an interesting casting there. Um, and I just thought like getting those family moments, the movie viewed just as important as nailing the musical components of it. Did feel a little bad for Bryce Dallas Howard because that age makeup is not good. No, she's like a very random casting too. I, like, I don't know if I understand it. Like, are her and Matthew Vaughn like buddies? Maybe I don't know. Or, or he owed her dad a favor. I don't know. I don't know. But Ron well, Howard. I feel like is she gets John. a lot of crap for being Ron Howard's daughter. Like that was a whole thing when she directed an episode of The Mandalorian. It was like, oh, like of course, because you're Ron Howard's daughter, you get like all of these opportunities. And it's like, yes, nepotism in Hollywood 100 percent exists, and that's probably an example of it. But <laughs> but if you're I, good, I, know, I feel good. Yeah, she, yeah, she is good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, at least in terms of that Star Wars comment, pretty much everyone on Twitter thinks that, you know, she needs to get her own trilogy now. Like she's definitely one of the best creators working in Star Wars right now. But that's a whole other side of the point. Hello, Talk about Book of Boba Fett next time we record. The, uh, the Amazon X ray when was telling me when I was watching it, I was like, oh, she's only eight years older than Terry. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, she was playing the mom when he's like eight. So I guess it, you know, it all, it all works out. But agreed, Dave. Yeah. They were like, let's just put uh, like baby powder in her hair and it will call, we'll call her old. I was just <laughs> like, like, why does she have freckles now? Oh, she's older. What? Yeah. <laughs> it was so bizarre. Yeah. It, yeah. I guess they saved money where they could, right? $40 million. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Well. Anything else you folks wanted to talk about this movie before we wrap it up? Thoughts on Richard Madden as John Reed, which I thought gave another Bohemian Rhapsody connection. The actor who plays Littlefinger played John Reed in Bohemian Rhapsody. And so it's kind of funny, like all these sort of different parallels between these two movies. Littlefinger's a character from Game of Thrones. Was he a manager um, in of for Queen too? Mm-hmm. Briefly, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, briefly. Wow. It's also the same director as Bohemian, well, the same director who took over as Bohemian Rhapsody once Brian Singer was understandably shoved off. It's because of Rocket Man that they brought him in to finish it. I think that they were whoever was like seeing final cuts and they're like, oh, or dailies or something. Like, oh, we got to bring him in because Brian Singer is an absolute monster and will hopefully never work in Hollywood again. Richard Madden, I think, did a really wonderful job. I love anything that way he gets to have like his natural accent or as close to it as possible. So I was like, yes. Um, and I don't really like Honky Cat as a song, um, but the performance in the movie, I I loved. It's a fun duet moment. Mm-hmm. So did Elton write an original song for this movie? Um, Love Me Again. It's the the song that plays during the credits, and that's the one that he uh, oh. duets with Taryn. That did feel newer. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that won the Oscar for Best Original Song. It and it was the only thing it was nominated for. The only award that it was nominated for at the Oscars was Best Original Song. That is kind of odd. Yeah. But yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody got like all these nominations. It's like, are you people even watching these movies? Fuck you. Anyway. I think I just ignore both, both, both Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket Man. Like, because when movies that are so similar come out, or like what you, the way they're marketed is so similar, they can't, they neutralize each other. And so, like, I was like not interested in seeing what I thought was being sold to me as formulaic biopics or biopics or however the, you pronounce it. Uh, and I was, I missed out, but now thank you for bringing this to the pod, Sam, because th- this was, so, yeah, this movie is a lot of fun. I did have one little, one quick little uh, historical fabrication that I did find to be a little bit much, um, which is that when uh, Elton is uh, first kind of like pitching himself as is newly, is newly donning the performance name, Elton John. Uh, he just has the name Elton at that point, which is after Elton Dean, who is a, sax- a saxophonist. And the guy asks him, like, okay, Elton what? And he pauses for a moment. He stares across the room. And there's this framed picture of the Beatles, the Fab Four, early into their career. And it zooms in just a little bit. And we get this little non-diagenic spotlight on John. And then it pulls back and he's like, John, 
Elton John. It's like, well, that, <laughs> I know it's like name recognition, but it was actually after vocalist uh, Long John Baldry, who actually saved Elton John from a suicide attempt at one point in his life, which is where you get the song, Someone Saved My Life Tonight. So you would think for true fans, you would want to include that, but everybody knows John Lennon. So I thought that was a bit of a cop-out. That's really I'm funny. Su I'm surprised that that wouldn't be accurately depicted because Elton John was like an executive producer, right? Of this movie. Mm -hmm. He had, he had like a hand in it. You'd think that he would want an accurate or like something tied to what he actually experienced, which was choosing the second part of his name. But I don't, yeah, I don't know. Maybe the screenwriters were like, we need, something yeah as you said dave more recognizable yeah it's just like a weird i don't know like hook all of a sudden in what you know obviously it's like they, they invent fabrication some of the timeline doesn't sync up with his actual life or whatever but that's you know forgivable in his stylistic decisions but that's one where it's like i don't know that feels really important especially if you're a big fan of elton john which you know one could assume is a majority of the audience i'm curious <laughs> if they because he was, you know, they cut the whole part. You know, he was going to commit suicide because he was going to marry a woman who he didn't love because he was a gay man. And this was, I think, 1960 or 61, like something very early. And so I wonder, like, um, was it that later? Because there was, it was before his start, right? Before he blew up, I thought. Oh, maybe. Um, and so I thought it was interesting that this first marriage attempt and suicide attempt was cut from the film. Maybe it was in the scripting process. Point is, I was just curious, like, maybe that was an element they were trying to fit in, but with the structure that they set up, I wonder if they just couldn't make it work mm. script-wise. You had a marriage before the marriage depicted in the movie? Uh, almost, and then it got canceled. Oh, got then. it. Got it, got it, got it. He was betrothed. Um, one thing that doesn't matter at all, but um, the actor that played, the like, the first music producer, I can't remember what his name was, um, but that actor is Stephen Graham. I cannot see him as anything but Al Capone. And it bothers me so much because it shouldn't matter, but it does. That big cigar you talk doesn't help, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, folks, thank you so much for watching Rocket Man. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. It was a pleasure to bring to the group. Um, basically, this episode was like a, a love letter to Taron Edgerton, but he deserved it. So um, make sure that you go and follow us on all of our socials. Um, you can send us an email at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at butterwiththat and on Twitter, butterwiththat1. Did it solid. What's up? Woo! And um, what a, what a joy. And folks, thanks for listening. Have a good whatever. This has been a movie John podcast.